0: Oh, that's a Super! super. Oh, that's a brilliant for the play by Mahé!
1: Oh my goodness, man, what a shot!
0: 100 goals, 7. 100 goals, the head! the
1: Hello everyone and welcome to the Uninformed Handball Hour. It's going to be a short and sweet podcast today as we look back over the first leg of the quarterfinals in the HF Champions League and look forward to the second leg because a lot happened in that first leg and amazingly out of the four quarterfinals, three of them really are up for grabs heading into the second leg. So exciting times and uh, we're going to talk about them now with Alex Kulish. Hi, Chris. And Brian Cappian. Hello there. Well, where should we start? Should we go with the biggest
0: surprise first? Depends depending on what you, you... agree. Yeah, depending <laughs> on, on what you, what you consider
1: you, the, <laughs> the, the
0: biggest surprise. I would say Alborg. I, I think so. And it's really interesting because with these two-legged um, games, for, uh, we've seen so many big comebacks in the history of these kind of knockout ties that sometimes you don't really appreciate how big a win is in the first leg because you're like okay if there's an upset you're still expecting the bigger team to just storm back in the second leg but albor beating flensburg by five goals 26 21 only conceding 21 goals is an insane result like i really uh i was i wasn't expecting a game like that at all and even throughout the game um it just looked like a classic Flensburg game because Flensburg actually were very poor throughout the game. Just their shooting, their turnovers, they didn't look very good. But for some reason, they just stuck around. They were within one goal for most of the game. And then, you know, you got that feeling that, okay, they're just going to turn it up in the last 10 minutes or whatever and just get their win or draw as they've been doing in the Buzz Liga. But it was actually... All board that turned it up with Felix Klar taking over. Felix Klar
2: and and Lucas Sandel, I think, I mean, Lucas Sandel, I mean, he's the, just watch, just from that, if you just watch that game alone, you think he's the best guy on the planet for giving the ball at speed and just let the balls fly. It was absolutely incredible some of the goals he was scoring. And you felt like everything he was doing in attack was just absolutely perfect. The timing of everything he was doing was just on the ball and uh, between him and claire was was it inc- was incredible I think it with the whole all of the well almost all of the uh quarterfinals we saw a lot of names that you maybe wouldn't I mean a lot of people that wouldn't be too familiar with if you know what I mean so almost all the quarterfinals we all had kind of these the new generation of names kind of popping up. Not not all, not all of them. Young people, of course, but there was kind of like the secondary names were shining a lot. I think, and that was a, kind of a, a thread crossed uh, across all of the quarterfinal games. And Clare and Sandel were definitely the two names in that game. I mean, it's probably the worst I've seen Flensburg all season. And it, everything you said, Alex, in the last podcast was everything they didn't do. You know, and they were just—they looked kind of—they were dropping the ball. They were fumbling it. Sogard missed the goal, missed the fr- it didn't frame it twice in a row. <laughs> and, <it's, laughs> and that's something <laughs> you never really see from him. I think he was two from nine after like twenty-two percent. I mean, so there was a lot of really bad performances from the from the Flensburg team. I mean, even Jim, he's probably their 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 best player in the day. He didn't really have a great game. He looked a little bit frustrated at times. So they won't be the same same team. Well, <laughs> I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say that, but I highly doubt you'll see the same Flensburg team. Um, come Wednesday.
0: It it was interesting because actually saying everything I said in the last podcast one thing that I realized after we recorded it and what I got really wrong was I said you know Flensburg have had a lot of games cancelled this season so they're they're looking fairly fresh but then I I looked back and realized that because they had all their games cancelled earlier in the season over the last month, they have been on an absolute roller coaster. They've played eight Bundesliga games in the last month. So a game every four days. And they've, they got seven wins and a draw in that period, but it felt like a tired performance. So what I said was completely wrong. I was saying, Oh, they'll, they're going to be a bit fresh. It was the exact opposite of that because. It, it was exactly what a tired performance looks like because it, when a team is tired, they drop the ball, they mi- miss easy shots, and especially yeah, Mad Spencer Larson and Sugor just had stinkers. And I'm just wondering, is has Mad Spencer Larson signed with Alborg for 2022, or is that still unofficial? It's still, it's still a rumor,
1: uh, and I think, you know, when you, you see Felix Klar, and nikolai Leso playing the way they're playing at the moment, they're basically showing that he's not needed exactly. <laughs> at the club because uh, <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of Alborg players fighting for their future at the moment and doing it very, very well. But you mentioned those two backcourt players in particular, Mats Menzel-Larsen and uh, Joran Sugard. Did... Uh, the performance in uh, last week in the first leg really exposed just how lacking in depth Flensburg are. Because on so many occasions, they've been playing matches basically with four backcourt players. You know, they've had Sugard uh, and Mads Menzel-Larsen kind of swapping between each other. Uh, or Mads Menzel-Larsen basically filling every backcourt position with then Sugard, the starting left-back, Jim Gottfried's in the starting playmaker, and Magnus Rudd at right-back, but without any kind of real depth. And, you know, they
0: can't always perform to the level they have been this season. Yeah, I think um, especially the right-back position has been the big issue. And Magnus Rudd is, um, he's still come back from an injury, so he's, he's not match fit and he's been in and out the whole season. So he hasn't been able to get any momentum. And that, that's that been an issue because I think he's really vital for Flensburg and Norway. So he really needs to get fit. And they also lost uh, Franz Zemper to a an ACL injury. So that's the other right back. So they're left with a 40-year-old um, Alexander Pedersen who's just, you know, he fills the gap. But a lot of times it's, it was, it's been... Mads Benselarsson playing in that right back position and it just kind of causes a bit of an imbalance and you're right they've those eight games in the last month you know on average they've played 10 players in those games they're really um it's a tight squad and I think yeah really if Magnus Ruud can get more fit for the next game that that's the key um it's tough without a proper right back With the depth, um, it means that because they had so many games, they just don't have an opportunity to put in their second stringers because they have no second stringers. Um, You know, Jim Gottfriedson has just played every minute (laughs) in the last month. It's not like, you know, Veszbrem or Barca who can just put in a second team for the league games. And obviously that's very difficult to do in the Bundesliga anyway. But, you know, they've had games against like the... Ulin Lied thinks Hafen and uh, to Essen and okay Berger, and you know they they've had easy enough wins in that period but they, they had no opportunity to rest and um I think it showed and Holberg just looked really 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 good and the, we have to just give it up to uh, Agafors in goal with 16 saves um which is a pretty impressive performance. And interestingly enough, I was like, he's really popped up. I was thinking that, you know, he's been very good this season, but in the games against Porto, the two games, it was actually the other goalkeeper, Sivangel, that had the big game. But Agafors was, you know, he got like two saves from 20 across those two games. So he really, uh, he really came out of nowhere in this case for that performance. I'm very impressed with
1: your pronunciation of uh, alborg's second goalkeeper for those of us who are not danish speakers uh, when you read that it reads like gade or gada and say that again simon
0: what gail oh my god i never it's, it's the soft okay. d okay. soft d is essential and i'm still working on it so, i'm sure i got it fully wrong in the ears of a danish person but it sounds good yeah. to you that yeah that's uh, that's all we need
1: Uh, We'll we'll save the predictions for the end because I want to hear them all at once. Uh, So we'll move on to the next game here with, uh, I think, the other big surprise, which was Nantes uh, against Vesprem. Nantes winning 32-28, a really messy game at times, actually a bit like Albert Flensburg, which I did say would be a scrappy one. I reckon a four-goal defeat for Vesprem is them pretty much getting out of jail because it could and probably should have been a lot worse for them. Yeah, I mean, when I was watching, when I watched, or
2: I was thinking back about both of those games—the like Flensburg game and then this game Nantes, uh Vesperm, i was thinking it felt quite similar. But in a way, I think, um, like recapping it in my head, I was thinking, coming on what Alex said there, Flensburg—it just looked like they had a really bad game, and they just looked super tired. Where I was, I was worried for parts in Vesperm. they kind of looked a little bit, kind of, almost tactically outclassed for parts of the game. And I'm not sure I really felt that with Flensburg. It just really seemed lethargic. But it seems a little bit more worrying for me for, cer- for certain parts of the second half, especially for uh, for Vesperm They just seem kind of completely out of ideas. But I will say this, there was so many players in the non team that had such amazing performances. It's even hard to really pick out who, who, was, who was the best um, from their field players, of course, I'm talking here. Um, there was really... A lot of a lot of great performances. I mean, um, even someone like Baptiste Matran, even someone like him coming on, it was just like such a, like almost like a super sub performance that he came on and just grabbed uh, grabbed the game by the scruff of his neck and just uh, really took his opportunities. So there was a lot of names in there. You look at the score sheet, the spread of goals among so many players. It was uh, truly a really really great uh, team performance, and I loved absolutely loved the way the backcourt could just the, the uh, of sec in uh, centre back. I think he's such a tricky character and he was really working well with, uh, with their line, uh, Dragon, um, Pech, Pech I think uh, the way they could open them up at, at, at certain points. I think you touched on it, Chris, as well. Pech Malbec, when he got the ball once and he was going one against one, he was, <laughs> he was attacking then like he was a left back or a centre back coming in. And uh, it was, uh, it just shows you the, the, the gusto they had for it. And it was, uh, I think it was a Tom tweeted after the game. He said, that there's something about this Nantes team that reminds me of, of the 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 Montpellier team from a few years ago when they won the Champions League. Uh, there's just unbelievable energy to them. And I think not whether it's something to do with the club being kind of still a new Champions League club, they can get up for certain games. And the second half of their season, they just seem to have gotten better and better and better. And it's it's not going to be easy for Vesper and by any means the second leg.
1: Yeah, before the game from the vestrem site they they had stated that like if it was Matteo lecoy and David Davis both said like just how basically annoyingly tricky Nantes are to face uh, and I think they mean that in attack and in defense but they still weren't able to to deal with it in the end and I think they were kind of shocked at the start with how easily they were getting through the Nantes defense which was just completely turned off and emil nielsen said in his post match interview like we just had everything a bit wrong. Like the blocks were not correct. But then once they fixed that uh, towards the end of the first half, then Vesper really looked lost in attack. And it really came down to Peter Nenadic with his like <laughs> random play. Like that was a perfect, that was a perfect day for him to come in and kind of basically save the day from him because, or for them, because although he, Made a bunch of mistakes as well. He was able to score these uh, pot shot goals and goals out of nothing, which kept them ticking along.
0: Yeah, but it's yeah, it, you know, it's a. I think with an adage, it is a chicken and egg situation where in in this case, it, it's great that he can save them when nothing's working. But I also think he's a big reason why things don't work at times. <laughs> so it, it was he, it needed to happen because Borzan and uh yahi Omar uh had very poor games um and okay that then you need Nanadish to do something weird um but you know it, you said that um you know veteran got lucky and they you know they lost by four with Corrales also making fifteen saves so they had an incredible goalkeeper and um were just completely overwhelmed and you have to really give it up to uh, Alberto Interias for what he's done with this non-team. And it's this amazing mesh of um, experienced players and just these raw talents like Damatran, like Amerik Mean, like uh, Brie, who, who wasn't a big force in attack in that game, but he was really crucial in defense to have a, what is he? Um, he's a 21-year-old guy to be in that center block in a Champions League quarterfinal play basically playing his first ever first team uh, season is incredible it's incredible confidence and I think that's something that Antares has managed to do over the season when Nantes had a few injury troubles when they um were a bit inconsistent uh Interiors really trusted these young guys and it's, you know, bearing fruit now in the later stages of the
1: season. Theo Mornar is another one as well, the line player who still incredibly doesn't have his name in the back of the shirt. Like, I don't know why they just don't print his name on it. Like, he's he's a French international now and he still hasn't got it. But um, you're so right about the defense that uh, as on top of that, Felio is not there, like he's injured for the rest of the season. So that's their defensive, uh, leader who's not there. But after, you know, 15 or 20 minutes, I had like Alexandra Calvacanchi, uh, Brie and Petra Malbec just like flying out to nine or 10 meters and like almost challenging these players in the air, like really stepping out, knowing that likes of Boljan and Nadic need to, get a bit of space to shoot and they were just like really battering them out at uh, nine ten meters it was really impressive stuff yeah it's uh it's a team that's beaten Kiel, Kielce, and psg away from home this season so uh you know they don't they don't even need to win uh, but emil nielsen also said in that post-match interview we're not going to go there and be defensive we're going to go there and win, uh, to try and
0: win it so uh yeah it's uh, impressive stuff on that emil nielsen comment I think that is going to be so interesting and it's the first couple of minutes of every one of these like comeback games that we're expecting and everyone's expecting it and I think it's incredibly difficult as much as um, Nantes and Alborg are going to go in and say we want to win this game and you know we know that that's the approach we're going to have. Mentally it's so difficult to not revert to a oh, we just have to not lose by four goals. We have to lose by three goals and we are we win overall. And, you know, it, there's a turning moment probably within each of these games that's going to happen where, you know, it's going to be level, the t- the team that's ahead, like Albor are kind of battling, and then they go behind and it's how th- they react to that moment. And Emil Nielsen said it, he's done it before with Skirn, uh, but even in that game um, they almost blew it and it's because of that mindset and I don't know how you can instill that kind of mentality because I think at the end of the day you you just you're looking for to go through and uh, yeah, it's just a challenge for these teams and that's why I think we always you know let's say take these first leg victories for granted a little bit Um that they're you know we expect a comeback and i don't think that weighs on the players well there's basically no room
1: for uh thinking like that in the next game keel and psg thirty-one twenty-nine in that first leg uh so really no real going to be no real talk of comebacks or anything because two goals is really nothing in a situation like this uh, keel managed to win it coming from behind without sandra Sagerson as well and Harald Reinkind, another big Norwegian, stepped up there with ten goals. What did you make of that performance?
0: I think it's ridiculous what Keeler are doing. Um sh- they shouldn't have won that game. Without Sagason, again they've had a tough schedule in the league. And they're just a well oiled machine. They're the epitome of, you know, perfect German handball. Where every move, you know, every attack goes through a set move, but there's so much um, variation in all of these set moves that there's so many opportunities for it to change that it's difficult for a defense to, you know, follow those moves. And I think at one stage it was I don't think I've ever seen it before, but it was basically, they did a uh, kind of like an empty switch where both Duvniak and Zarabetz kind of ran off the ball and turned around. And Zarabetz was running towards the pass and he led it through his hands. He lifted his hands to catch the ball, led it through his hands and Duvniak was behind him to catch the ball and shoot. And it's just that level of detail in the set moves. And we heard um bevan calvert talk about how when he got into that Kiel team the amount of set pieces and set piece variations that they had was just overwhelming but he has them just running as an, a well-oiled machine in a slightly different way to let's say barcelona well-oiled machine but they're just kind of powerhouses they rely on the ball arriving at the right places Kiel just really you know they just do the right thing every time. And there's so much variation in these set moves. And that's why they can react to Sageson going down. And they can just still play the same way and get a victory like this. And yeah, Rankin was pretty incredible. And I, he, him and Luka Karabatic had an amazing battle in the first half. I counted that they had 14 direct contests. So literally going one-on-one against each other 14 times. And Rankin got three goals out of that. So actually, it was quite effective. Luka Karabatic did, um, despite Rankin having a good first half, most of the time when they went into direct contest with uh, Karabatic, Karabatic came out. And then PSG switched to 5-1 in the second half. And it, it, it was a strange thing because... Actually, that shut down Rankin, the 5 1. Uh, He didn't have as much space to move, but it unlocked Duvniak and Zarabets, who were really quiet in the first half. And it was just really up for the first half was just give the ball to Rankin, let him do something. Second half, the 5 1 defense shut down Rankin, but unlocked Duvniak and Zarabets. And that way, uh, Kiel were able to keep going. And I think. To be honest, um, if I was Raul Gonzalez, I was stuck with the 6-0 and said, you know, let Rankin beat us. You know, he had a fantastic game, but he just couldn't keep it at that level for um, 16 minutes, I'd say, and just trust that Luka Karabatic would shut him down. In the 5-1, it was Rankin against the number two defender and it was slightly changed. So I think that, that was a big part of... Um why Keel actually kind of went into the lead in the, the second half and kept it.
1: I was super impressed with the way that Keel managed to deal with the the center block being uh, torn apart basically as well, with Hendrik Peckler getting, two two two-minute suspensions in the opening 10 minutes and basically putting him in foul trouble. uh, He probably wasn't going to touch the defense again probably until maybe halfway through the second half. But then Patrick Wienczek got injured um, with what looked originally like a really nasty injury. Uh, In the end, it's confirmed that he'll probably be able to play again in about four weeks, which is really... like You don't get good news like that after seeing seemingly knee injuries like that. So, uh, But him being forced off then for the rest of the game, forced Hendrik Peckler back in. And I think how they managed to 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 ride that, like one one defensive specialist being kicked out and then the other one uh, was really impressive at a time that they were turning the
0: game around. And when we previewed the game, I talked about the you know, how Hansen is going to play or how Gonzalez is going to set up the team to allow Hansen to be Hansen. And That was kind of thrown out the window quite early because Prandee got injured after eight minutes. So Hansen didn't start the game, Prandee started, which, you know, that's basically a statement from Gonzalez that's saying, you know, this is Luke Stein's team, basically, (laughs) which is a pretty incredible thing to uh, commit to, um, despite Stein's having a very good game. But Prandee got injured after eight minutes, so most of the game it was... Hansen and uh, Steins together and yeah I, d- I don't know it, it worked at times I, th- I thought that um, well Hansen didn't have a good game he went one from four from outfield shooting and then scored uh, four penalties I think so he he wasn't quite there his shooting wasn't quite there he got a few assists but then he also had a few kind of slightly awkward passes that were you know just that 10% not uh, close enough to being an assist. So Hansen was off and they didn't try at all to give Hansen control of the game. They ensured that Luke Steins was with him the whole time. And they actually played four minutes with the lineup of Hansen, Remi and Christopans and that was pure chaos it was actually you know they did they did fairly well through the talent of those players but the attack was just chaotic which tells me that they have not actually practiced that lineup they you know gonzalez is fully trusting steins to control the game and they haven't fully practiced the the second lineup or set it up for this game and i think again, that's a pity. Uh, I think they need to have some time during the game where Hansen can do just something amazing, like the passes to the wing from across the court or really control the game. Um, And it didn't happen. And they just kind of slowed down, slowed down, slowed down. And when their defense stopped being the core and they got a lot of kind of turnovers and fast breaks, when they stopped getting that, that's when um Keel came back into it. My favorite part of the game was
2: when Gerard came on with a minute to go and he subbed on, took the ball, took the shot, the whole team PSG team were going what are you doing? First of all, we're two goals down. Take a shot, completely missed it. I thought he'd absolutely lost his mind. And then you see him turn into the referee, turn to Boris, the referee going, we only had one shot left, yeah? Yeah. And he's like, yeah, we only had one shot left. Back to the whole bench again. I see so he was a bit justified in the end, but I just thought it was gas. I thought he'd absolutely lost the plot coming off the bench taking a shot. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, thankfully for both sides, they'll be a bit, or they'll be back up to full strength uh, besides Patrick Wienczak because Sanders Agerson played on Saturday, scored four goals against Ballingham so he is fit and Prondi played in the French cup final, uh, where our PSG beat Montpellier. So, yeah. Um, I think it's, uh, well, if Kiel managed to pull that off without Sagerson, it's, uh, it's hard to see, it's hard to see them lose it at this stage, but we'll find out very soon as we make our decisions. quickly about Brest and Barca then uh, Brest pushed Barca hard after a really slow start and uh, losing in the end 33-29 what did you make of it Brian Uh, well uh, Raul Alonso said after the game I thought it was a good quote I'm not really sure what he meant
2: by the quote but I I think it kind of fits somehow he goes "Uh, it was a very special game for us it was like climbing Everest with flip-flops so the only solution was to put some spikes on
0: those flip-flops. I'm not really fully <laughs> sure what he meant there, but it kind of
2: somehow fits.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's a, it's probably a reference to them losing three fairly key players in Panic, who was my, you know, the the guy who would make the difference for Brest. Uh, so Panic, Pachkowski, and Skurinski, three kind of key players for them. So uh, they are left with flip-flops, but uh, I, I think they had enough spikes on those flip-flops to... Uh, um, cause Barça a bit of
2: trouble. It did, yeah. It was the the first few minutes when Barça went five one up, and I was watching this. And I was going, "Oh God, this is going to be a really long evening." And you could see it. It felt like there was there was one point where uh, breasts were making this switch, and DKM went really high out on someone, and it almost felt like. And then there were com- there was um, oh God, what's his name? Oh, Santalov. Was it Santalov in backcourt? Yeah, and he t- and he took. A shot, and it was just like he was. Comp- and he, two players in front of him with a block, and they could just have completely red. And it felt like the Barca team were almost playing with an extra player in defence. They had them so well uh, sussed. It was around. The, I think it was around the ten minute mark. Then think things started to change. Once they brought in your man, uh, the keeper uh, Uzic, and he he really his saves. I mean, not only helped them, but the defence just seemed to com- completely change. His saves maybe just give the defence a lot more confidence as well and then that made it a game and I think probably made it the best game probably of all the the, the four uh, quarterfinals between Scuba and Parmesan with all the assists it was just a it was quite beautiful in parts uh, to watch and I think it was Alex you put up that absolutely disgraceful uh, no look uh, bounce pass from Parmesan it, for, it, that was in the first five minutes yeah. I mean that was just like this, this isn't going to be a good game and I saw
0: this I was like this is going to be terrible <laughs> I, I do have a comment about these assists yeah. numbers, that <laughs> meshkov Breasts are the most generous assist uh, stat takers in all of Champions League handball, and all of handball. <laughs> uh, they really, um, they attribute an assist to pretty much every goal, which I don't actually think it's that bad because it does show how important... a a kind of a lead playmaker is when you see someone like Scuba with 16 assists and Palmerston with 14, it does show showcase the importance of those players. But um, I think they're they're a little bit too generous (laughs) that you could knock it down a little bit. I think it's, it's actually in the right direction. I think in general uh, handball stat taking is a bit too stingy where, you know, a player can run through, Take three defenders and pass the ball off to a backcourt player who shoots through a gap, and that doesn't doesn't count as an assist. Maybe they're doing it right. They'll be the first team to do it right. Exactly. I, but they also <laughs> kind of they give the assist where it's just a pass to the right and a jump shot from nine meters. And that's okay, the, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they're yeah. almost. there. I think they're they're in the right direction, um, but they're a little bit too generous. But uh, a little bit you watch, when you watch. When we watch Scuba's highlights
2: himself, though, I mean, see, yeah, he did he did have a good game, and there was some there, he did have some some uh, some very good assists at the same time.
1: And Nikita uh, Vailupau, eleven goals from eleven shots, continues to have an amazing season. He can't be he can't be in Brest for much longer. Is he not moving to Vesperam? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Am I left that wrong? No, uh,
2: I, I thought he was signed up for Vesper. That's no? a
1: great signing. If it is, he's check. such a good player. Uh, question mark? Yeah, 2022, 2023. So it could be, ah, so it's not confirmed could be the season after next um great sign enough it is yeah. if it does get confirmed yeah uh, well also the uh, Vesper had Gasper Margage eight out of eight so uh, it's not like it's not like they're there's they're weak on that well right wing but uh, funnily enough uh, on, on the Vesperm game something we didn't mention there was only one wing player in the entire Vesperm team that was Gasper morgage on the right wing and Kenton Mahe had to play in the left wing which was uh, which was quite odd. Okay, lots of lots of news to talk about, which uh, we're not going to have time for here because we did say it was going to be a short one. But one of the main ones, I think, which we could talk a bit, a, a bit more when we preview the women's EHF Final Four is Gabor Danyi being fired by Dürer. And uh, after Dürer lost to FTC by nine goals, which practically won FTC, the Hungarian League, which in itself is an amazing piece of news. But... Um, Ambrose Martin is back in uh, as head coach and they got their revenge on Saturday, beating FTC by four in the Hungarian Cup semi-finals. So, uh, yeah, very interesting there. Like losing one game in, what, how many? 50 something, 60 games? And, uh, and getting the sack when he's already leaving at the end of the season. That's, uh, I just find that remarkable. It's it's a shame that, seem, that it seems to be happening more and more you see handball going that way where it's kind of like,
2: Especially with some of the bigger clubs and some of the bigger clubs in in certain countries, uh, where you're not really given too much leeway at all and not really too much. I mean, yeah, probably even more amazing that Ambrose Martin decided to come back because originally it was meant to be um, gerbitz taking over, wasn't mm. it, for the rest of the season. And then all of a sudden it was Ambrose Martin coming back, which when I was reading the comments online underneath some of those posts, there was some, uh, some people didn't think it was a obviously not 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 your fans, but people seem to are in Hungary anyway. Some people seems to love to hate on oh. every single decision that you make.
1: Well, he was going to come back anyway next season. Uh, mm. Ross Martin? But yeah, um, I don't know. I think after he, uh, I think some of the hate for him probably came after he coached Romania uh, for a while. Yeah, and uh, and then yeah. leaving to Rostov. But uh, interesting to see what kind of impact he has on the team. Also, the playing style. Uh, for the final four in a couple of weeks time.
2: Do you not think it's a bit of a, a maybe slight risk if, he go, if they go into the final four now and it just doesn't work out for them, that he's already kind of walking on glass for the start of next season before he's even had the team for a certain amount of time to train them up properly. But then again, at the same time, a lot of the players that are playing there, he's already worked with them for so long. And I mean, Gabor Danny probably used a lot of his the system he left and uh, probably not too far away from what he was
1: doing anyway. If you were to choose one piece of news out of all, all your news, Alex, what would it be?
0: Uh, it had to be Xavi Pascal ah, yeah. uh, leaving mm. Barcelona. Um, that is... It's, it's a bit of a shock. Um, I don't... I haven't seen any clear news as to why he is leaving it. There's no specific reason.
1: Um, is there? I Well, I read on... Uh, I think it was Mundo Deportivo, one of the Spanish uh, newspapers that... It could be somewhat linked to the new Barcelona president, like the club president, and him not being happy with uh, the fact that Aaron Palmerson was leaving, and so there might have been some kind of like uh, philosophical disagreement there, and that might be a reason. I mean, you are you're way more uh, knowledgeable on the the Barcelona politics, I would say, Alex. So I don't know if that's something that would uh, that you've heard about at all.
0: Yeah, I I can imagine Geron Leporta coming in and uh, not being happy. I think I I agree with you that the Palmerston um, transfer was handled very badly, Um, but it seems a bit harsh to sack a coach of 12 years who is probably the most successful handball coach in terms of trophies of all time. for that specifically, I think it may just be quite a maybe a difference of opinion between John Laporta. He's quite opinionated. Xavi Pascual's quite opinionated. And um maybe um you know Laporta wants to make a mark on the club again to rise it up to another level. But it, it just seems like a strange time to do it. There's rumors that um Barcelona want Carlos Ortega um, to take over um, but his contract with Hannover Bergdorf finishes in 2022 so there's a gap of w- one season that I don't know um, exactly how it will be filled. Um, it's it's a real pity I think um, he's a great coach and you know stability we talked about what makes a great handball club and stability is the key thing and he has brought that and maybe um, could go in a bit of flux, but um, hopefully f- they find a good solution. But I think pe- people are talking
2: about him like he's leaving handball, though. But I mean, just because he's had one job doesn't mean he's leaving. Comp- he's, he's, I'm sure he's going to continue coaching, though. Well, no?
1: that, that's what I was just going to ask. I mean, but it, it's hard to... <laughs> How th- where, do you, where, do you, where do you go from Barcelona though, You know, for 12 years?
2: Um, I think Sasser online was saying there's something about you're going to see him in the Bundesliga, like he knew something that we didn't maybe know, but I don't know. Where would you see him coaching in the Bundesliga? Oh, no.
1: After Barcelona for 12 years, like, I mean, I maybe maybe takes over as uh, as the Spanish national team coach at some point. Maybe a national team mm. job. He's he's a young man as well. Like he's fifty three years old. Mm. Um, I, I find it really hard
0: to picture him somewhere else at the moment. After Barca. French national team or the French national French national team. <laughs> that is that would actually be he, he solves the French national team dilemma. Uh, that that would be the, the best move for him. He, but, he does
1: uh, he does love French players, so yeah
2: yeah exactly mm.
1: but uh, yeah I, c- I can't somehow seen him in like
2: I was thinking what top clubs in the Bundesliga could possibly be changing coaches and I, I can't help but think about someone like Fuchs of Berlin might uh, I don't know what their 20, 22 year old coach uh, or whatever he is uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I can't imagine it's Pascal wearing Fuchs of Berlin gear I don't know it doesn't seem to really match does it like alright or Melsungen. Well, or uh, We'll
1: <laughs> follow, follow the money um <laughs> Let's uh, let's wrap up with quick predictions then. Uh, after these quarterfinal first legs, which four teams are gonna go through to the H F Final Four next month? I think I I think I'm I'm ready to commit. Okay, go for yet. first. Go for the Alborg, Nantes, Kiel, Barcelona. Oh my god! So no turnarounds. Oh. Oh, that's big? No turnarounds. Yeah, yeah,
0: and all four teams coming from group b oh which was the weaker group I- I- in our discussion in general
1: wasn't uh, it well it had the three best teams and then after that we figured the yeah, weaker but yeah, funnily yeah, enough uh outside of that was is two teams that were in like that middle bracket yeah oh uh, i'm gonna go for barca keel and i'm gonna say the
2: Vesperman and flensburg are gonna turn around their both of their ties
0: you know, I'm gonna cover cover all bases here, but it is actually what I think, and it, I, I do think Barca, PSG, Albor, and Veszprem. Oh, nice
1: mix there. Okay, so you you're, you still believe in PSG? It's only two goals.
0: And They are home. Yeah, it's only two goals. They were they're better, and I think Veszprem will have um, home support. That's something that um, we didn't really talk about, and I think that is important. Um, in games like these, um, so yeah, I'm actually quite confident. in Veshbrim.
1: Those those Veszprem fans I, are I also hope. very good at being angry when things aren't going their way.
0: Uh, we
2: just really hope that Brest don't win, because huh? the three of us are all wrong again. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> sure, surely not. Surely not. Brest mm. are away from home. Nah, it's got to be Barcelona. It it's got to be Barcelona. Good stuff, guys. Thanks everyone for listening in and uh, share your predictions and and your thoughts on what we said as well on our social media channels our email account as well if you fancy it HannibalLara at gmail.com and we'll catch you next time goodbye